Trigger warning. This episode contains content about eating disorders and suicide. If any of those topics are particularly sensitive to you, please do not worry about listening to this week's episode. Cassidy Bayer didn't know who I was, but I always knew who she was. We're both from Northern Virginia, and because we're around the same age, we competed against each other at various swim meets regularly. Well, competed is a strong word. This girl destroyed me every chance she got. Cassidy was a local swimming legend. Um, I got into swimming, a huge influence was my parents. They both swim in college. They're both butterflies at D2 schools, um, and they got me in the water around two years old, and I was off and running by four, and the rest is history. Yeah, so was there a particular point when you were young, when you were swimming, that you realized that you were exceptional at it? Maybe around the age of eight. Like, I was just, like, understanding the concepts a little better, like stroke technique, for example, um, and something I did when I was younger, my I danced, I ran I was just extremely flexible in my ankles specifically and I don't think people pay attention to that especially um people who don't understand the sport as well or just see it as swimming but when it gets when you get to a certain level I mean it comes down to technique and the smallest things I mean like bottoms of your feet uh, way your ankles move like I think I had that gift and that is kind of when I started to realize I was pretty good uh was when I was just kind of winning all the time (laughs) but um obviously that's not how it continues to go um when you get older but at that time yeah I was fortunate enough and um trained well enough I guess to be the best of my age (laughs) But not only was she breaking local pool records of Northern Virginia left and right, but she was also making waves on the national stage. She still holds the 13 to 14 national age group record in the 200 meter butterfly. She was competing for the USA as a member of the junior national team where she traveled the world and kicked ass for the red, white, and blue. In 2016, she qualified to swim at the Olympic trials where she placed fourth in the 100 butterfly and third in the 200 butterfly. But Only the top two swimmers in each event qualify for the Olympics. And so one of the major turning points was at the 2016 Olympic trials. Can you go over what type of mindset you had going into that event? Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about that. I mean, that was a huge turning point in my career. And the craziest part was I was 16. So the farther I get away from 16, the older I grow up, it honestly feels like fever dream, but a dream that definitely impacted me. Obviously, it wasn't a dream, but you know how you get older and you're like, whoa, that actually happened. I mean, I was going into the 2016 Olympic trials with no, I wouldn't say goals, but um, because I had goals, but not assume I'd make the Olympics. That's for sure. I mean, I went in, I think I was seated like maybe 12th in the 200 and like 20 something, the 100. Anyways, long story short, get through prelim semifinals and then I make it to finals I'm seated third in the 200 fly fourth in the 100 fly and I mean why the heck not try for the Olympics if you're that close they take top two so was young 
I, if I qualified, I would have been the youngest member on the U S Olympic team as a whole. So it was intimidating being a 16 year old around, you know, girls in their twenties, late teens, early twenties, late twenties, you know, and when I touched the wall and got third for a short time, I think it was Camille Adams that had actually disqualified, but they ended up overturning it. So for a short time, I was essentially going to the Olympics and I, you'd think I'd be over the moon. Internally, I was like, crap, like I'm supposed to, you know, represent. Um. Anyways, it got overturned. I got third. I was honestly butthurt about that as well. So either way, I felt like I was going to lose. But when it came down to that, I got third and I was confused. I was upset. I was relieved. I mean, I was a lot of things. I was swimming my best. I was sleeping my best. I mean, what else could I be doing? And after, you know, days had passed, I get home from Omaha. I'm on call to be an alternate. So I have to stay in a certain, like they have to know where you are in case someone gets hurt. And then yeah, I have to fly out to Rio where it was. And so I was, I had to sign some paperwork for that. So I was kind of cooped up, still kind of training here and there. Didn't really expect anything to happen of that, which nothing did. But as I was reflecting, I was like, you know what? Maybe I can look into other ways in which I can get better. I know I'm putting my all out there in swimming. I'm optimizing my sleep. I mean, I was getting up at 3.50 for a workout every morning. So you kind of don't have a, you don't have a choice whether or not to get up at a, or to go to bed at eight because you'll regret it in the morning. So I turned to nutrition. My parents are very clean eaters. And I say clean. They like to make their food. They like to know the ingredients in them. They like to try new things. You know, granted, my brother and I, Clark, would grow up fighting for Oreos and she would get us the alternative uh, alternative kinds of Oreos where it's like a little healthier. And we would just, you know, accept that that was the closest we were going to get. But anyways, as I got older and, you know, swimmers and at this time it was around 2017 and honestly not a lot was out there about like how we as female athletes and honestly male athletes, how just anyone should really perceive their body and how they should treat it. Anyways, long story short, and I say that and it's still going to be long, I was eating and then I wasn't food that I didn't know the ingredients of or if I read a label or something or saw too high of a number or I didn't know the ingredient like it wasn't an option for me and that didn't become a choice it became a rule and that led me down to a harder path and unfortunately for me it was one thing after the other I mean I tore my meniscus and then that happened another two times so three times I tore my meniscus you know I got a stress fracture in my hip and this is years down the road and my doctors as I you know develop my eating disorder they're like well this is essentially because of malnutrition. After the Olympic trials she committed to the University of California Berkeley to swim under world-renowned head coach Terry McKeever. McKeever was the head coach for the women's team during the 2012 Olympics and coached swimming powerhouses like Kathleen Baker, Dana Vollmer, and Missy Franklin. McKeever also led the Cal women's swim team to four NCAA championships, the second most compared to any other women's team in the NCAA. But all that glitters isn't gold. Behind those gold medals was a history of verbal and emotional abuse. In January of 2023, 
McKeever was fired after a university investigation sparked by an explosive article in the Orange County Register exposed this history, including McKeever's routine targeted bullying of specific athletes each year, regularly screaming and swearing at athletes, revealing private medical information of swimmers to the team, pressuring swimmers to practice and compete despite physical injuries, and making disparaging comments about athletes' weight. And obviously, being at 16, you'd assume you'd have more option or uh, opportunities ahead of you. And that's what I thought, um, which is why I chose to go to UC Berkeley under Terry McKeever, because I could essentially see myself hitting that goal of the Olympics and calling myself an Olympian and uh, doing it for our country. So there's a lot in between and a lot in between the lines of it all. And uh, some people don't still haven't seen or heard. And I'm willing to talk about anything, but long story short, I'm not swimming anymore. And I'm two sessions, you know, I, I went to treatment for twice, approximately four months each. And I'm in a way better place now. And granted, I'm not at Berkeley. I'm at University of Tennessee graduating in about three weeks. So life's different. Uh, I will say my mom got her PhD at Berkeley and she told me I was not allowed to apply there for undergrad because the environment there from what she told me was just like, it's very like, and I say this even after going to a school that was also like pretty high stress, but like even, even she was like, no, you can't, no, you're not even going to apply now. So definitely have heard things about that environment. When you were, I assume you're like 17, uh, deciding where to go to college. What stood out particularly about Cal and what did you think of the environment before actually coming there? I mean, at this point, I traveled the world swimming with the U.S. junior team, U.S. national team. I mean, I had Missy Franklin to look up to who talked to me a lot about Berkeley. And I had Kathleen Baker who told me a lot about Berkeley. And I had Dana Vollmer who taught me told me a lot about Berkeley and taught me a lot about Berkeley, like, and swim next to me at Berkeley. I mean, these names are like, to me, were significant enough to just go, not knowing what I was getting myself into, because they're great people. They mean well, they swim well. You know, as a young swimmer, you want to be like that. You want to pursue those goals that they had attained. And um, Terry was well-established and a female coach, and I respect that, and I still respect that. And um, I remember my dad asked me, he's like, would you rather be a small fish in a big pond or a big fish in a small pond? And now looking back, honestly, big fish in a small pond, but at the time, I was kind of sick of being the big fish in a small pond at, you know, in Northern Virginia. I felt like I was, and, I, and essentially looking back at it, I really was. But I wanted to change. I wanted to be with girls who, you know, I couldn't keep up with every day. That was a big part of it as well. And so choosing that, you know, looking back, I think that personally, and not every athlete's like this, but personally, I needed more attention than I was offered there. And when I say attention, I mean like support. I needed more feedback. I felt like like my coach from home, when I say home, like Northern Virginia growing up, he really knew me and he took time to know me and care for my well-being. And I assumed all college coaches did that, especially the ones who were of that caliber. And as you get older, you know, you realize that isn't necessarily the case. And uh, there's a lot you just don't see at that age. There's a lot you don't think about. There's a lot you don't obviously know. 
there's a lot you don't see until you're in the thick of it. It's my life and it's the life I chose to live and um, I am grateful and I'm still proud and I would not give it another thought to not go to Berkeley because I think I was my strongest version of myself there even when I was at my lowest point. Do you have any distinct memories from your time there that you felt like a failure? It's funny you ask this and I and I understand your concept of your podcast falling down failing down I would like to rephrase it and say like not necessarily that a point that I felt like a failure but a point in which I couldn't keep going anymore and a point in which dug myself that whole quote-unquote that whole of failure feelings I don't want to bring like um suicide into it get it out if that's something you know I'd come out of treatment. I mean, this, I hadn't been swimming for about seven months. I mean, and keep in mind the most I hadn't swum collectively, like in a row, the most I hadn't swum in a row since I was the age of maybe eight was two weeks. I came back from treatment and um, I remember my first day back, I was doing a triple workout. Went to dry land, which is our weights for 45 minutes. We'd scoot down the hill, go to workout, swim for about an hour, hour and a half go to school, come back to the pool, do another two hours. There was a point where I could not finish a lap. And I just remember looking up at our assistant coach at the time and being like, I, I can't keep up. I don't know how you want me to accommodate this. These intervals are not realistic. She said, hold on, let me go talk to Terry, whatever, comes back. She says, get out, you're done for the day. Terry didn't want to talk to me. She told me to go home. I was going to quit that day. I was walking home, I was sobbing, calling my home coach, Jeff King, and ended up in the hospital that night. Called a dear friend of mine, who to this day, I owe her everything for that day. Sorry. It's okay. It's hard. <laughs> no. Um, Take a deep breath. Yeah. It's fine. I, I, but, I, lost, yeah, no. <laughs> I lost a very close friend to suicide, so I'm really just empathetic towards all of that. Yeah. I'm sending you. Yeah. Virtual I mean... <laughs> I didn't really know who to call, so I called my friend Elise Garcia, and I just feel bad for her seeing me in that state, you know, and she drove me to the hospital, and and, um, I just sat with those emotions, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what it felt like to be really low, Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm crying because, like, I've just come so far, and I'm not Mm -hmm. nowhere close to that anymore, and, you know... It's crazy to think that, like, something you love so much, like a sport you can love so much, can also kill you on the inside. And my biggest thing is, like, if you are ever in that situation, like, reach out to whatever is, like, giving you the slightest finger, the slightest hand, you know. And although I had, quote-unquote, support at Berkeley, I didn't really feel seen. Yeah, I was struggling. I was losing weight. I was essentially in hospital care for about four months, like being monitored every night because my heart rate would get so low. And I was like, oh, it's just the athlete. And they're like, no, Cassie, it doesn't get to 34 when you're sleeping. They're like, that is like death. <laughs> um, they're like, if it gets under that, we're sending you to hospital. Luckily, it didn't get under 34 mm-hmm. and I bounced back. Yeah, Berkeley did not. Berkeley didn't work out. But I have my, like, my, my, those girls that I went through it. And I said this yesterday on my Instagram story. Like, they are deeply rooted. Like, I have deeply rooted love for them because I can really relate to them. They were there on my worst of worst days. 
and they sat there with me. They sat in the hospital waiting for, like, it was just, um, I've never seen a type of love like that, and I miss it. Yeah. So I know there's, I've read the articles, uh, there's been a large investigation that has now been concluded about Terry McKeever. It has been alleged that she has said some incredibly harmful things, that she has pushed athletes to eating disorders, that she has played mind games with athletes and been the opposite of a support system for that. And I just want to know if you have any statement. I think uh, some of my teammates can relate. Uh, When you go to Berkeley, you're not an average swimmer. You're essentially the best of the best. But for Berkeley's sake and for the sake of our reputation, essentially, Terry wasn't wanting to risk it. If she saw something, in my eyes, if she saw something that was threatening to the team, she would squash it real quick. And it didn't matter if that affected that one person. She kind of saw it as a, well, this affects, you know, one person, but this would affect everyone. I don't know. So, yeah, a couple of things she did that were questionable. And I have spoken out about them without my name being said in that investigation. She's not a completely bad guy. I mean, she has made mistakes and so have I, you know, she may not have had the best outlook on some things and some topics and have taken charge of some certain circumstances. And I'm really trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. Not everyone can do what she did. So to some degree, I amend her for that, for sure. And there were some days I felt like she did see me. Unfortunately, those days were probably my hardest days. And I wish she could have seen me on some of my better days, you know. But I think because of her, what's the word I'm looking for? Reputation, sorry. Because of her reputation and because it was kind of put on a pedestal to a lot of people for uh, like being an athlete on her team or being a new athlete on her team, you already had her on a pedestal. And I think that's the first problem um, as a coach or as with an athlete-coach relationship. I think it should be... not necessarily equal I mean the coach has to have some sort of you know like senior not seniority but um authority authority yep there that is the word thank you has to have some sort of authority I mean to push their athletes um and I think that that was just taken to an extreme and anything any of the girls did they had Terry in the back of their mind I mean we would just send her texts saying like we had an exam that we we're going to mispractice and we'd have four girls look over it, make sure there are no typos. Like essentially she didn't want you to waste her time. And I think um, that kind of built a wall as well. All right. So you mentioned you ended up going to treatment two times and what kind of made each experience different and how did you deal with relapsing and having to get support again. Yeah, that was definitely one learning aspect for me. And when I say learning, it was essentially something that felt like a failure. You know, you do it once, why why do it again? And you get better once, why you worse like why didn't that work, you know? And I think going back a second time was the best thing I could have done for myself. It was good in the sense of I knew what to expect. I knew what to expect in terms of scheduling. I knew the protocols. I knew if you didn't do this, you had to do that. I knew, you know, that made it a little less uneasy. And the people I met there both times, I think about often, those people who want it for themselves, or maybe don't even want it for themselves at the time, but will learn to want it for themselves, are who 
inspire me. Going back to treatment, obviously, I thought I was a failure. And when my coach and when my past coach here at Tennessee, Matt Credich, said, you know, I think this is the best thing for you. I mean, I obviously fought it for a little bit because I just had gotten to Tennessee and I just had gotten in the water and they were like, ah, mm, time to go back. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. At that point, though, I was so down bad that I was like, didn't care. When I went back, I didn't really fight it. I met my best friends there. I met one of my bestest friends there. I've learned not to get fixated on future plans because that essentially does lead to a failure mindset if you don't meet those plans or those and I'm not saying don't have goals have goals but don't map out every single plan like every single interaction you're going to have every single like job you want the time span you want it the time in which you want a family within that like life throws curveballs and if there's anything you can get from this podcast it's that in this episode, it's like, life's going to throw some shitty stuff at you. Anyways, I had this crew following me around from the age of 14 to around 18, 19. Uh, wanting to see if I could make the Olympics is such a young star. They brought this to producers and they're like, well, and this is prior to trials. They're, say, they're saying, well, she's a straight A student. She's the best in the nation at what she does. She doesn't cry on camera. She has a great boyfriend. She has a great home life. She lives a privileged life, like all this stuff. And they're like, there's no drama. There's no like catch. And I don't know what it was, but they freaking jinxed me. Charles comes around, don't make it, tears a meniscus, commits to Berkeley, develops an eating disorder, goes to treatment, comes back goes to the hospital for suicidal attempt, leaves Berkeley, goes to Tennessee, goes back to treatment. I mean, it's like, it's essentially like, it felt like I had everything. And then all of a sudden, like nothing was working in my favor. And some people do fall down and, and they have a hard time getting up. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it's worth it. It's not easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Mm-hmm. You need to learn how to want it for yourself. Sometimes it's as easy as having one interaction with someone. It could be a random person, it could be a random, you know, and it just clicks. That's kind of what happened to me over a couple of clicks. You know, it takes a couple of times sometimes. I mean, I don't necessarily learn the first time. And I think that's what I also learned in treatment going to the second time is, you know, let's really put this to rest. My second time, I was like, I am not wanting to come back. Mm-hmm. So far, I haven't. It's been two years. At the end of the day, when I put my head on my pillow and I think about where I am, how I got there, and my relationship with swimming, I'd say it's complex. But I'd also say I've had so many opportunities and so many quote-unquote failures that were my opportunities. That were the biggest lessons I learned and the biggest ways in which I came back and, and essentially now am doing life for myself. Is there any like last things that you particularly want somebody to get out of listening to your story? I don't want to say it sound cliche, but there's a reason people say a lot. If you don't feel like you are seen, heard, if you need help, be honest. Don't put that face over it. Because if you put that face on that, that, that fake face over anything you're going through that you don't, it's not going to end well. And to whoever's listening or catching this podcast or... The biggest thing I can say is like, if you are going through something like, no doubt you can do a lot of things on your own, but when you're dealing with internal battles, you really need another perspective. 
keep fighting the good fight and uh, better days are to come for sure. And if you are on that other side and you've gone through that and you can relate to any of this and you can relate to in and out of treatment or stopping, like retiring from your sport as a D1 athlete or an, ath- an athlete going from high school to just being a normal student in college, you know, it will always be a part of you. It is a part of you. It's not going anywhere. The athlete in you is not going anywhere. And to best utilize that mindset and use those tools in your toolkit that you've learned from the sport. I mean, and keep using them, keep them fresh, keep them sharp. Um, And good things will come your way. Right now, Cassidy has just graduated from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and is about to begin a paid internship at Knoxville's local NBC station, WBIR. Good for you, Cass. I'll end this week's episode with a story from when Cassidy and I were in high school together. We were both entered to race the 500 free, which, with 20 laps, is the longest race of a high school swim meet. We went to opposing schools, and when I scanned the list of entries and saw that we were both racing the event, I thought to myself, shit. I have to swim next to Cassidy Bayer. At swim meets, after the race, there is a tradition that we go to the edges of the lane lines and shake our competitors' hands. She finished over a minute and a half ahead of me, and when I touched the wall, exhausted, I went to reluctantly shake her hand. When I went over to her, she greeted me with one of the brightest smiles and told me that she loved my goggles. It's a small random memory, but her enthusiasm and kindness always stuck out to me. Cassidy... You are such an inspiration to myself and others, and you don't even know the impact you've had on the various swimmers of Northern Virginia, and I'm sure around the world. Thank you so much for being open about this story and trusting me to tell your story. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Failing Down the Rabbit Hole. All episodes are written, recorded, and produced by yours truly. The theme music is produced by Jabari Butler, and the cover art is illustrated by Ariana Vilches. If you liked this week's episode and want to further the pod, subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with your friends. XOXO, Kira.